a group of Western teachers were meeting with the Dalai Lama a few years ago and asking his direction on what uh, Dharma should be communicated in the West. He said there are these you know, vast teachings of the Buddha on emptiness and the whole tradition, and then there are the more relative teachings on cause and effect and karma. And what do you think is really most important for Westerners to learn about? And the Dalai Lama said that, in his opinion, it was far more valuable that Westerners learn about karma than that we learn about emptiness. So tonight I'd like to uh, take the Dalai Lama's advice to heart and talk a little bit about uh, this mystery of karma. The word has become popularized in our culture now, but in a slightly misleading way. You know, John Lennon had his song, Instant Karma, and you hear it bandied about, what the Buddha actually meant by karma was related to the uh, word at the time in his language, where karma just meant action. That's all it meant, was action. But in explaining how he understood it, the Buddha said, by action, I mean volition, because it's from volition that action comes. So a synonym for volition really is intention. You can think of it as uh, intention or will or desire or volition. They're all pointing to the same thing. There's an urge that arises in the mind, and from this urge spring forth various actions, actions of body, of speech, and of mind. So the term karma doesn't actually mean the results of the action. It means the action itself when it's accompanied with a volition or an intention. There's another term that means the results of the action, and that term is vipaka. When people talk about vipaka karma, it's the results of actions. The results of actions can be wholesome or unwholesome, basically according to the intention or the volition in the action. Volition is a mental factor that's said to accompany every uh, waking moment. There's some kind of intention or volition present. And the volitions can be categorized as either wholesome, those which lead to happiness, or unwholesome, those that lead to more suffering. So the karma or the action takes on a wholesome or an unwholesome quality depending on the wholesome or unwholesome nature of the volition or intention that guides the action. So when we look into the roots of karma, the wholesome roots are said to be uh, our old friends, non-greed or generosity, non-hatred or kindness, and non-delusion or wisdom. So the unwholesome roots then are our old buddies, greed, aversion, and confusion. So in the way the Buddha saw things, an act itself isn't wholesome or unwholesome in itself. It's the intention that accompanies it. So for example, the same act could have either very wholesome or unwholesome intentions. A robber might stab somebody in the belly with a knife in order to steal their belongings, but a surgeon might cut the same person with a knife in order to perform an act of healing. So the act itself isn't the source of the karma. It's the wholesome or unwholesome intention. It's also said that karma is uh, acting out in three fields of body, speech, and mind. 
Each of these three fields have, has different levels of impact, has different degrees of strength. The actions of body are said to be the strongest, the actions of speech, the second strongest, and the actions just of thought, the weakest. So someone mentioned the other day they were a little worried about getting into thoughts of anger in their meditation. And just to kind of reassure you that when you're just thinking about the anger and not actually acting on it, the karma of that is relatively weak. When we carry it into speech, it gets stronger, and when we carry it into bodily action, stronger still. And you can look at this really directly in your own experience. I was having a discussion with um, someone a couple of weeks ago about practice, and we were talking about whether a certain teaching was going to inspire people to do practice or not, formal meditation practice. And this person, who's also a meditator, said, well, it doesn't really matter because that's not the point. It's not the point whether people do the formal practice or not. The point is, does it change their daily life? And I found myself getting a little reactive because I felt, I feel very strongly, that there is some value to doing the formal practice. (laughs) And that not to honor that was overlooking you know, a really important aspect of the Eightfold Path. And I found as the person talked more and more, I found myself getting more and more reactive and more and more annoyed. And um, I was holding myself back from saying something until finally I couldn't hold any longer and it just blurted out of me, oh, I must have missed something then. I must have missed something in the Buddha's teaching in that case. It's just a very sarcastic thing to say. <laughs> and as soon as I said it, I could feel the amount of reactivity in me, the amount of irritation, take a quantum jump up. Before, it had sort of been manageable, and as soon as I said it, it was like putting my foot right in a big pile of something. (laughs) And automatically, there was just a lot more energy. I've also noticed times um, when I'll be in the middle of an argument, and uh, these these levels of intensity usually happen with um, my devoted wife. who is the only one who hangs in there with me through them. And we might be having just some exchange of words, and then at some point if I get really angry, I'll stomp off and slam a door. And I notice that when I move from the speaking to the taking bodily action, like stomping out of the room and then slamming a door, again the energy level goes up another notch. So just to start to tune into that in your own life, the power of thinking a friendly thought towards someone is good. That's really what the metta practice is based on. The power of saying something kind to someone is stronger. And if you've noticed what power there is in giving someone a gift, if you've really carefully thought about what would make them happy, and you actually give them something as a bodily action, can be even stronger still. Now, of course, this isn't the time and place for the saying of kind things and the giving of kind gifts. But again, back in your daily life, notice these different strengths connected with action. The Buddha felt so strongly about this, he said that karma makes the world go round. You might have thought it was a 20th century lyricist, you know, (laughs) said something like, love makes the world go round. The Buddha said, karma makes the world go round. Living beings are bound by karma like the chariot wheel by the pin. So the basic teaching is that when we act out of wholesome intentions, it leads to happiness for others and it leads to happiness for ourselves. 
When we act out of unwholesome intentions, it leads to unhappiness for others and it leads to unhappiness for ourselves. The Tibetans have this very beautiful phrasing of the metta and compassion phrases. They actually have a a set of phrases for all four of the Brahma-viharas, for uh, mudita or joy and also for equanimity. But I love their phrasing for metta and compassion. The metta phrase is in a chant that they call the four immeasurables. And the phrase is, may you have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. And their compassion phrase is, may you be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. To me, this is a beautiful reflection because it really points to the root of human happiness and unhappiness. The Buddha expressed it really clearly also in the second verse in the Dhammapada when he said, mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you like the wheel of the cart follows the oxen. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak and act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you like your shadow unshakable. So the teaching is that actions have consequences. I find it interesting that this idea is really filtering into the mainstream of our culture today. Very different situation than 20 or 30 years ago. A couple of years ago, uh, James Baraz and I were uh, giving some teachings on meditation at a juvenile hall. It's a juvenile hall in San Mateo. For those of you who don't know about the justice system, quote unquote, (laughs) in this country, juvenile hall is where uh, teenagers are detained before they go to trial. So these are kids generally between about 13 and uh, up to the age of 18 when they become adults in the eyes of the law. It's a holding facility before they go on trial for things like armed robbery, assault, murder, grand larceny, and so on. One of the people who was working at this facility in San Mateo is a meditator and thought it would be great if the people who were staying there could get some exposure to the Dharma. So she asked uh, James and me to lead a class, and we did. We did a five-week series, and we didn't call it meditation because we figured that would turn everybody off. We called it Mind Power. (laughs) that's a better marketing term in that environment (laughs) at the end of the class we gave them a little graduation certificate that showed that they had completed their course in mind power and one of them asked asked me could I show this to the judge (laughs) said sure you can try so we'd been teaching them for about uh, four classes. We went down every week, and we'd been teaching them for about four weeks on the basics of mindfulness and paying attention to the breath. And mostly what we tried to teach about was how to work with their fear and their anger. Because you can imagine that they're cooped up in these cells all day long. They're just kids. And in a few weeks, their life is going to be on the line when they're brought to trial. And they don't know whether they're going to end up in jail for the next 10 or 20 years, whether the judge will decide to try them as an adult when they could be put away for life, or what might happen to them. So they're in a great state of insecurity. 
they have no way to deal with the emotions. We gave them very basic body and emotion techniques for paying attention to their feelings. And several of them said that they found it very, very helpful. So they kept coming to the class. We weren't sure that they would, but they kept coming. So last class was coming up, and I said to James, you know what, I'd really like to teach on the precepts. And he sort of looked at me like, are you crazy with these guys? Because we were dealing with the guys who were in maximum security, which means they were in for some of the offenses that I mentioned earlier. And I said, yeah, you know, it might be the last time that they ever could hear these teachings. I'd like to try it. So the way that I approached it was something like um, the Buddha's discussing of what brings happiness and what brings unhappiness. I said, this guy, the Buddha, sort of figured out the science of what makes people happy and what makes them unhappy. And I said, have you ever noticed that when you do things out of a kind heart, you know, kindness comes back to you. And when you do things out of an angry heart, anger tends to come back to you. Have you ever had that sense? And one of the young guys put up his hand and said, do you mean like uh, what goes around comes around? And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, I get that. So it was a language that they could, they could really get very instinctively. There were a lot of beautiful moments uh, in that class. One of the things that touched me a lot was a young guy, this African-American guy, very soft, very sweet presence in the group. And uh, we'd ring the bell at the end of the sitting, then we asked him to share about their experience. And he said, when I heard that bell, I just followed it on up to the window in the roof. We were in a room with a skylight. And he said, I just went right out the window with the sound of that bell. It was very beautiful. So the teaching is that actions have consequences. We think about um, this and we can see that we can relate to it directly in our life. In one sense, actions have really immediate consequences in the moment. When we act out of kindness, when we act out of giving, it feels good in the here and now. When we act out of contraction, out of fear, or out of uh, cruelty, it doesn't feel very good. You can actually feel the pain of the contraction when that is going on. It's like Sylvia said the other day in a talk, anyone who's causing a lot of pain is himself in a great deal of pain. We also find the results of our actions in the memories of them. Often in the metta practice, we encourage you to reflect on things you've done for yourself or for others that have been really helpful, to reflect on your own good deeds. This is not to generate a sense of pride, but that so you can actually take joy and take delight in the memory of your goodness, to have a real conviction of your own goodness, to feel it directly. Also in meditation, as we get still, we may often uh, find memories are coming of times when we haven't been so kind, of times when we've been unthoughtful to people. And then also the teaching on karma is that these actions have consequences in the future in really mysterious ways, in ways that we cannot fully understand, in ways that we can't directly see for ourselves. The the Buddha talked about this really clearly, and it's a part of the teaching that 
for the most part, we can't really verify. Most of the Buddha's teaching is great because it's so pragmatic, it's so empirical, we can check it out. You know, if you pay attention to the breath, you become peaceful. Check it out. See if it's true. You can find that out for yourself. If the mind is contracted with fear, it brings pain. Check it out. We can look and see. But this level of the teaching on karma, we're not able really to verify. So in talking to you about it tonight, I really want to just put it out as part of the Buddha's teaching, as something that he felt was important, and then kind of leave it with you. It's not something that anybody else can convince you of. It's not something that I want to try to convince you of. But I do want to let you know what the Buddha said about it so that you can uh, kind of hang out with it and reflect it and see if it resonates for you, see if it feels true. Over many years of practice and observation, I've gotten a great deal of faith in it. You know, to what extent it's blind faith and to what extent it's verified faith, I can't really say. But I have a, I have a very deep trust myself in this teaching. One of the ways that uh, karma really makes a lot of sense is in the field of ethical conduct. When we opened the retreat, we talked about uh, all of us taking the five precepts together. Those precepts are really expressions of the wholesome intention of non-harming. They have immediate causes that we don't cause suffering to others. They have long-term causes that we don't cause suffering to ourselves. The precepts are really great protections for each of us. The Buddha outlined actually a list of 10 unwholesome actions that he said were the expressions of unwholesome karma. Three of them are expressions of body, four of them are expressions of speech, and three of them are expressions of mind. So he gave us very clear and concrete guidelines for working in this area of wholesome and unwholesome action. Basically, he said that in actions of the body, killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct are unwholesome and lead to further suffering. In actions of speech, the actions of lying, of speaking harshly or abusively to someone, speaking maliciously about someone, and gossiping are unwholesome actions of speech. And in thought, he said the unwholesome actions of thought are covetousness, ill will, and this last one is really curious, wrong view. That is, having an understanding of the world that doesn't align with the truth. The Buddha said a lot of suffering arises from misunderstandings. And he filled in, one of the most pernicious forms of wrong view is believing that actions don't have consequences. And you can sort of see that in the world today. There's a level of, you might say, nihilism or lack of faith that leads to things like um, a callous disregard for other people, that leads to stealing or killing or infidelity, um, not being aware of the pain that sexual misconduct causes to others. 
there's harshness of speech that uh, isn't moderated or that isn't restrained. So I think you can see a lot in the world that the world at large doesn't have this understanding that actions have consequences. It's a great gift for us as meditators that we have this appreciation of the precepts. Sometimes this getting stuck in nihilism actually comes because people get too attached to the teaching on emptiness. When people think that seeing the wisdom side of emptiness is all that matters, they start to believe that actions aren't important. There's a really beautiful uh, quotation from Padmasambhava, the Indian saint who brought Buddhism to Tibet, that um, states the truth about this. He said, though my view is as spacious as the sky, that means his understanding is vast and his equanimity is equally vast. My actions as regards cause and effect are as refined as grains of barley flour. This is that combination of a vast degree of freedom and real impeccability in action. So at retreat centers, you get a lot of great opportunities to look at this uh, skillful means in terms of not taking what's not given and not killing and so on. There was a dilemma at the uh, Minneapolis Zen Center, which was led by Katagiri Roshi, who's a Dharma brother of Suzuki Roshi, Japanese Zen master. They were finding at that time that there was a, a problem with cockroaches in the Dharma hall. People would come in for a sitting, come in to hear the Dharma, and there'd be the scurrying of little feet that you'd hear in the silence. Some people were really bugged by that. They (laughs) didn't want to sit with cockroaches, and the attendance started declining. So it put the students in a real dilemma. You know, what do we do? If we kill the cockroaches, we break the first precept. If we don't kill the cockroaches, nobody comes to the zendo. They really didn't know what to do, so they went to Katagiri Roshi and put the problem to him and said, Roshi, what shall we do? And he took it in and he said, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) And he didn't. So he put the problem right back on the students. They decided in the end to have the hall fumigated. So the cockroaches were killed. And then people started showing up for meditations again. So even though this is the precept not to kill, even though they were aware that it was an unwholesome action, there was also the understanding sometimes it may be the appropriate thing to do, even in a Dharma context. Similar questions um, arise for really sincere practitioners around issues like euthanasia, maybe where pets are concerned, and abortion. A real deep struggle around these questions, but sometimes the, the action that the precept is uh, stating not to take may actually be the right action in that situation. It was also fun to be on staff at a retreat center because um, in, doing law, in being on staff for long retreats, the meditators would get really comfortable in the place and start to feel that the kitchen was their home as much as any other part of the facility. One staff member came into the kitchen one night about two in the morning and found about four meditators in there frying eggs and (laughs) making toast. And uh, it was a little disconcerting because you see from the point of view of the cooks, not taking what isn't given means taking what the cooks put out. 
and uh, sort of drawing the line there. And that's the way it uh, is meant to be understood. Another time a staff person walked into the walk-in fridge and one of the meditators was in with his hand in a box of dates, lifting a date to his mouth. And the staff person said, being a friendly, you know, compassionate staff person, can I help you? And uh, the meditator said, oh, I was just looking for the caretaker's office. (laughs) (laughs) Which they were then happy to show him to. I know one time I got a really early teaching on karma was um, when I had just graduated from college and I'd taken my first job. I was 21 years old and I was very nervous about going out into the world and not having enough money and leaving the protected life of university and moving into the work world uh, full time. And I didn't... um, didn't have a great deal of resources, and my car, which was a VW Beetle that was about 10 years old, broke down. Took it in for repair, and they said, well, to repair this, it's going to cost you about $600. I said, no, no, I can't do that. So um, I sold the car, and I sold it to somebody without telling them how bad the damage was, (laughs) even though I knew. So I didn't actually tell a lie, but I also, I wasn't truthful. I knew I was hiding something from them. And my conscience tormented me about it afterwards, but I still kept the money. I went out and I bought a little, I went out and I bought a little sports car. After I'd gotten a couple of paychecks, I bought a Triumph TR4. You're familiar with that. It was really representative of British auto engineering in the 1960s. Um, which meant it broke down all the time. I owned it for two years and I had two valve jobs on it, which is a really major expense. And I started to realize, oh, maybe this is happening because I sold somebody a bad car and somebody just sold me a bad car. Since then, I've done a little more truth and disclosure and advertising and I haven't had those problems. It was an instant lesson. So paying attention to the, um, to the areas of uh, right conduct in body and speech and mind really can lead to a lot of clarity and a lot of happiness. In fact, the phrase of the equanimity meditation, also in the Brahma-Vihara family, points to this truth also. The basic phrase in the equanimity meditation It's a little hard for Westerners to accept when we first hear it. It says something like, all beings are the heirs of their actions. Their happiness and unhappiness depend on their own past actions more than on my wishes for them. This is a very sobering reflection. In doing the equanimity practice, You basically repeat this phrase over and over and over again all day long, holding the different individuals as you have in the loving-kindness. Yourself, a benefactor, a friend, a neutral person, and so on. With the reflection that each person's happiness and unhappiness comes from our own past actions. It was a very powerful practice. One year, in an intensive retreat of about six weeks, I did uh, each of the Brahma-vihara practices for 10 days in an intensive fashion. 
And for me, after the metta practice, which has been the strongest for me, the equanimity practice was the most powerful of the other three Brahma-viharas. The Buddha went on to say that if you want to see someone's past actions, take a look at their present circumstances. If you want to see someone's future circumstances, take a look at their present actions. Now, I want to throw in a caution around this area, and that is that it's really impossible to know the details. We can get really inclined to figure out, oh my gosh, I got this you know, terrible illness. It's a life-threatening illness. What did I do wrong in the past that has caused this? We can really dwell on a question like that. Or something really unfortunate happened. I got in a car accident this week. What did I do that was responsible for that? This isn't productive thinking. It's really impossible for us to know the workings of karma to that level of detail. The Buddha actually said that the workings of karma are one of the four imponderables. And if you think about it, he said it will drive you mad and cause you vexation. (laughs) He didn't say which of those was sort of stronger, but you'll go mad and experience vexation. The other four imponderables, just in case you're curious, so you don't have to think about them either. Um, The range of mind of the Buddha, the power of a concentrated mind, and the beginning of the universe. So just to take a load off your mind, don't worry about those. So I take this teaching on karma in very broad brush terms. People's general level of happiness and unhappiness are related in some mysterious way to past actions. And that's really as refined or as detailed as I feel I can uh, be about it for myself. One of the other teachings that comes in around the teaching on karma is the teaching on rebirth. And I want to talk about this a little bit too because the Buddha talked about it quite frequently. Basically, The Buddha taught that if we're not fully free at the time of death, the unfree parts of ourselves, the degree to which greed, aversion, and confusion are still active in us, has a propelling tendency of forward momentum that will lead to another being arising linked in some way to the continuation of our habits of mind that those tendencies, the forces of greed and aversion and delusion until uh, completely uprooted result in future becoming. And something about the tendencies passes on to the new being. Moreover, he said, the uh, life situation that we take birth in is a reflection of the wholesomeness of our actions from the past. So that if we have acted in a very wholesome way in this life, chances are that we can take birth in a situation that is basically pleasant. And that people who have acted in very unskillful ways and caused a lot of harm to others in this life find themselves reborn in situations that are uh, intrinsically painful. The Buddha actually described different 
realms or planes of existence that beings take birth on that are categorized by these qualities of pleasurableness or unpleasantness. This is all part of a grand cosmology that is unfolded in his teachings. Again, whether you believe in this or not is completely up to you. It's possible to be a very dedicated practitioner and not have any sort of faith or belief in this at all. But for some people, this is an inspiring view of practice because it means that the unfolding of our path takes place over a vast, vast period of time. And it can give an inspiring and awesome view of the project that we're embarked on, this great and total purification of the heart. So I'll just say a few more things about the cosmology. There are 31 realms of existence in all, and they're sort of graded from the most suffering to the most pleasant. So beginning at um, the lowest, the most suffering realm, the Buddha also referred to as realms of hellishness, a very intense suffering, and then working upwards through realms that are ruled strongly by desire, which are called the realm of hungry ghosts, realms that are ruled by ignorance, which is the realm uh, of the animals, realms ruled uh, of demons, of conflict and aggression, and on top of those four comes the human realm. It's said in the human realm that a particular capacity of our mind is that we have the ability to experience the mental states of the beings of all 31 realms. From the human realm, then, leading up in happiness, there are said to be six uh, heavenly realms that are called the deva realms, realms that are intensely pleasurable. They're filled with great sense pleasures, where beings in those realms experience no suffering at all until they die. And then the greatest suffering at their time of death is they're ignored by the other beings of that realm. And then it goes up into higher realms called the Brahma realms, which are basically considered godly realms of existence. And among these uh, godly figures are considered to be creator figures who may have actually shaped uh, this world and other worlds that beings take birth in. But it's considered that whether one takes birth in a realm of intense suffering or a realm of intense pleasure, one's lifetime in that realm is limited. There's no such thing in the Buddhist cosmology as an eternal birth. So by and large, the sequence is that beings experience pleasure for a while based on past wholesome actions. But unless they have renewed the wholesomeness of the actions, it's very possible then that past unwholesome actions would lead to taking birth in a less happy realm. And so the picture is of beings moving from one realm to another, experiencing happiness in one lifetime and pain in another over many, 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 many eons. So that the Buddha said that if you put together the skeletons of all your lifetimes, they would make a huge mountain. So, I offer that just as a potential part of the vastness of the view of life that the Buddha himself claimed to be able to see. In the teachings, in these ancient texts, this is not speculation, but the Buddha said that he could actually see with his own developed psychic powers the truth of this. 
Again, whether you believe in it or not is completely up to you. Manindraji, who was Joseph's first teacher, uh, used to teach about this stuff, and he'd always preface the teaching by saying, you don't have to believe in this. It's true, but you don't need to believe in it. <laughs> Just to know if you feel completely disbelieving of it, you're in good company. Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was one of my teachers in Thailand, a very respected monk, considered this whole teaching on rebirth completely irrelevant. Didn't teach it, didn't believe in it, didn't think it was of any particular value for him. And he was a pretty good Buddhist. And he was a pretty wise and enlightened practitioner. Stephen Batchelor, who I think is one of the uh, most creative uh, writers on Buddhism in our day, is also an agnostic when it comes to the question of rebirth. He basically says, I don't know from my own experience. I'm not going to say it is or it isn't. I'm going to stay with this position of not knowing because for me, that's the truth. So that's also a very respected position within the tradition. All the teachings on rebirth that we hear, we can understand in terms of these 31 planes that the Buddha talked about. We can also understand in terms of moment-to-moment birth. Because we actually take a new birth every moment that we identify with an aspect of our experience. A new I gets formed. If you come into one sitting and you experience a great deal of calm and a period of concentration, if there's any clinging to that, any identification with that, then you take birth as the good meditator. And the good meditator is a pretty happy birth, you know, as births here go. You can enjoy that one for a while. You can go out to the next walking period and feel really pleased with the sitting and pleased with this concept and identity. It's a really happy birth until you die, (laughs) until you come back into the hall again, expecting the concentration and the calm to be there like they were before, and it's not like that. And in that death, then there's suffering. Or you might get filled with a lot of hunger. You you might be sitting here in the 1145 sitting, and you suddenly find you're very hungry. You know, you think about that great meal you had a couple of days before, and imagine that you can smell the roasting onions drifting up from the kitchen. And then you're born as the hungry meditator. It's a little bit like the hungry ghost. And there's a little bit of unsatisfactoriness in that. And that may continue until you walk down the hill and get your plate and take a few bites and the hunger fades. So we're constantly being born into situations that are pleasant or unpleasant or sort of neutral in this setting. And you can completely understand rebirth on that level. And all the Buddha's teachings on rebirth then fit for you in that way. One of the questions about rebirth that comes up, people ask, if there's no self, then what is it that gets reborn? I don't want to go into detail, but I'll just tell you what Chogyam Trungpa said about that great Tibetan teacher. He said, basically what gets reborn are our bad habits. We'll leave it at that. So one level of understanding karma is that if we act in a wholesome way, wholesome results and happiness come into our life. If we act in unwholesome ways, unwholesome results and unhappiness come into our life. There's a kind of further understanding 
of this message of karma that I think is really crucial for us as meditators. And that is that the whole of the Eightfold Path is founded on karma. The whole journey to liberation is founded on the belief and the trust that the actions that we do that are in line with the path deliver us to freedom. So karma has this mundane sense that if we do good things we get happy, but it also has this transcendent pointing that in following the path to liberation, we are acting in a way to really free the mind in some total way. The Tibetans say, they say it this way, they say that liberation rests on two accumulations. The accumulation of wisdom or insight and the accumulation of merit. I love this teaching. I think it's a really profound pointing because what it says is that even if we open our mind and the mind gets strong and can see into the deepest truth of things in a moment that's enlightening and awakening and very, very profound, such a moment on its own may not be enough. But for most of us, we have to support moments like that with the accumulation of merit. That is, with the um, accumulated power of our past wholesome actions. Many, many, many eons ago, it said, there was an ascetic named Sumedha who came in contact with the Buddha of his time, whose name was Dipankara. And the ascetic Sumedha was developed in such a degree in mind training that if he had had one word of teaching from the Buddha Dipankara, he would have become fully liberated. But he was so inspired by his first glimpse of this Buddha in an earlier time that he didn't want to become liberated. He decided he would rather be a Buddha. So he made the aspiration at that moment, may I myself develop all the wholesome qualities that would be needed to awaken by myself at a time when the teachings of the Dharma have faded away from the face of the earth. And it said that that Buddha, Dipankara, saw this wish of Sumedha's, saw it with his psychic vision, and told him, I hear your wish and your wish will be granted. You have the potential to become a future Buddha. So Sumedha took that blessing and went off back to his retreat hut and reflected what were the things that he would need to do in order to develop the strength of mind and the wholesomeness to become a Buddha himself. And the answer that he came up with was the list that's called the Ten Paramis, which we've talked about a lot. Qualities like Sylvia talked about the other night of patience and determination, of truthfulness, of loving kindness, of wisdom, of renunciation, and so on. The paramis are the list that really detail how the wholesome forces of the mind, when cultivated in meditation practice and in daily life, have that cumulative power that liberate, that liberate the mind. So there's the need for insight, deep understanding. There's also the need for this 
accumulation of wholesome activities. The Dalai Lama in one book said that the Tibetan word for inspiration actually literally means force of, transpira- force of transformation, meaning that the virtuous qualities of what we're inspired by actually have the power to transform the nature of your mind. There's a name for this quality um, among the paramis, this particular pointing. A few years ago, I visited a great Tibetan teacher named Tulka Urgen Rinpoche. He was living at a monastery outside of Kathmandu, and we spent about um, two weeks going and visiting with him and getting teachings. And at the end of the two weeks, we asked if we could take refuge in his tradition. Of course, we'd taken refuge in the Theravadan tradition, and a number of us had been monks and nuns, but we wanted to take refuge in his teachings as well. And so he did it, and he gave each of us uh, names. That's one of the things you do in a, in a refuge ceremony, typically, is you get a new name, and to symbolize renunciation, we went up to him, and uh, he pulled our hair up a little bit and cut a little lock off to symbolize the Buddha's shaving of his head when he left the household life as nuns and monks do today. And he gave us a new name. He gave us the names of paramis, uh, some of us. And my name was Ergin, which was his name, Tsondrul. Ergin Tsondrul. Let me introduce myself. Tsondrul is the parami that in Sanskrit is called virya. Virya is normally translated as energy or effort. But in Tibetan, they understand it as taking delight in what is wholesome. And I really was glad to get that name because in my practice, I've needed a lot of virya. I've had to have a lot of virya. I started practice with a lot of unhappiness. I had a lot of fear, a lot of bodily tension, a lot of uh, mental unease in the early years of my practice. And I really needed to have a strong determination and a lot of energy to work through that. So I feel in myself a tremendous appreciation for what is wholesome in this practice. And I feel that if you don't really have that deep love of what's wholesome from Dharma practice, you can't sustain your path. Because it's a hard path. It's arduous sitting here hour after hour and walking and being quiet and not having contact. It's a very arduous path. And if you don't love the fruits of it, I don't think you'll sustain your journey. If you don't love the stillness and the wisdom, the clarity and the heartfulness of it. But if you love that, then that will really sustain you on your journey. So in every moment, really, we make this choice of being with the wholesome or being with the unwholesome. And time and time again, of course, we get dragged away by the unwholesome. I was doing a six-week period of metta practice in the fall and going through all the ups and downs of retreat practice. And there was one situation in my outside life that would come up from time to time that I'd feel angry about. I'd be doing my metta practice. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. Boy, I am so angry at this person. It would come in too. And it would sort of come in and be dominant for a while. And one sitting after I'd been carried away a number of times, 
this image came up spontaneously of the direction of anger. And the image that came spontaneously to mind was being on this deserted road at night. And it was dark. And the tree, by a tree that was dead and bare, and there was a wind howling across the road, and it was very lonely. I was all on my own. That was the image that came to me of where the anger was taking me. It was a place of real desolation and unhappiness and fear. I thought, do I want to go down that road again? Hmm. And just as I was thinking about that, I wasn't generating any effort. This other image came up on the other side of my field of vision. And I just noticed this thing appearing. I turned my mind and there was a circle of light. It was filled with yellow light. And in the middle of the circle, there was a Buddha that was sort of suspended in the air with uh, rainbows, circles all around. And on the ground below were bodhisattvas and practitioners. And then flying through the air were these Thai-style devas, which you may have seen in paintings. You know how they just kind of glide with their legs tucked up beneath them? So I sat there and I thought, hmm, (laughs) where should I go? And it was such a graphic representation of the wholesome fruits of the path and the unwholesome direction of my anger that it completely sobered me at that moment. And I actually turned my mind back to the metta practice, which was a great support. In every moment, we're all making that choice, coming back to the present moment, connecting with the breath, with sounds, with sensations, establishing mindfulness and presence with an accepting heart, with this flavor of metta at the same time. These moments of wholesomeness are very, very powerful. We may not feel so transformed by one moment, but little by little, they really add up. The Buddha put it this way, Don't disregard the accumulation of wholesomeness, saying, this will come to nothing. By the gradual falling of raindrops, a jar is filled. This is where our mindfulness practice is leading. No moment that you're awake is ever wasted, because everyone is going to fill this jar. And when that jar fills, that's what liberates the mind. That's the overflowing into real freedom. So there's the karma of wholesome and unwholesome. There's the karma of the path that leads to liberation. The Buddha said something really interesting about the end of the path. He basically said that for one who is fully liberated, there is no more karma. For one who is completely awake, there is no more individual will, you might say. There's no more desire. There's no more motivation. There is only this presence. And sometimes we can touch into that in our meditation practice at times when we really feel the freest. There's a sense that in that freedom, there's no compulsion in any particular direction. Yet as the situations of life present themselves, we can respond in a really spontaneous way with wisdom where that's needed, with compassion where that's needed, with metta where that's needed. So that the actions of the free heart really come forth without any premeditation. 
but the appropriate thing comes forth all by itself. Rumi said, drink the wine that moves you as a camel moves when he's been untied and is just ambling about. So the Buddha basically said that the karma that leads to the ending of all karma is the Eightfold Path. The path of wisdom, of ethical conduct, and of meditation. We engage in the techniques, we engage in the doing in order to bring the mind to some degree of stillness. So the movements of volition aren't so impactful, aren't so powerful, so that we feel that calmness. But once we're in that state of calmness, we can learn just to abide in the stillness. Not to need to do anymore, but just to be with that freedom and that stillness, that peace, and then let whatever wants to come from that moment, from that mind, unfold as it will. I'll close with another poem from Rilke. This is also from the Book of Hours. I believe in all that has never yet been spoken. I want to free what waits within me, so that what no one has dared to wish for may for once spring clear without my contriving. If this is arrogant, God, forgive me, but this is what I need to say. May what I do flow from me like a river, no forcing and no holding back, the way it is with children. Let's just sit for a minute. 